Right, well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this uh, Forum for European Philosophy Provocations event. Uh, I'm Simon Glendening. I'm the director of the forum. And uh, I'm delighted to introduce tonight the, the first of three events, connected events, um, around truth, lies, and adventure. And... Um, they're in a way a special kind of taster for something that will be happening later this year at Hay, at the How the Light Gets In Festival, which is the world's largest philosophy festival, be at Hay in um, May the 23rd through to June the 2nd. And the, what, a sort of running theme through um, the How the Light Gets In Festival this year will be Error, Lies and Adventure. And so we're going to have a little taster of some of that theme today and in two further sessions, the next one on Thursday the 21st of March, which won't be in here, it will be in the uh, Hong Kong Theatre, which is further down the Aldwych, and uh, then finally on Wednesday the 1st of May, so not long before the How the Life Gets In Festival gets going, uh, back in here um, uh, for the final of our three um, events, three provocations, which will be on the pursuit of adventure. All the details should be on the uh, programme, apart from the location of the third one, which we weren't sure where it was going to be when the programme went to press, but it will be in here. Now, taking us through these three provocations, uh, there are a number of speakers, but uh, a common thread through all of them uh, is our speaker tonight, who's going to set out the whole um, uh, framework that we're going to be working through. And it's uh, Hilary Lawson, who's the, the, uh, the person behind the How the Light Gets In Festival. Uh, he's also a director of the Institute of Art and Ideas, and a philosopher and author in his own right, um, the author of, amongst other things, Closure, which I know is um, uh, an approach to issues around truth and error that, um, that will be drawn on tonight and, and beyond. So tonight's um, event is, in a way, by way of an, an introduction and will be of the character of a lecture where Hillary will work through certain steps that he wants to get in view in order, for his purposes, to be exploring contemporary questions around error, lies and adventure in, in a way that he finds uh, intellectually satisfying. There'll be an opportunity for you two to... Uh, to ask questions in turn at the end, so there'll be about half an hour for questions at the end of that, and then hopefully we'll reconvene in a few weeks, in the 21st of March, where there'll be a, a panel discussion um, on, on the erosion of, 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 of belief in objective truth, which is, I think, perhaps one of the deepest and, and most uh, striking problems in this area, certainly in our time. So, to take us on our way then, uh, we, in this adventure, um, I'd like to welcome, I'd like you to welcome um, Hilary Lawson. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, uh, for your uh, thoughts there, and thank you all for uh, coming along uh, this evening. I'm going to talk to you today, as Simon has said, about error and adventure, and the t how the two might be linked. 
But let me begin with truth. We've got a strange relationship to truth, don't we? <coughs> I mean, don't we? On the one hand, we appear to know so much. If we don't know it, then just to click away on Wikipedia, we can find somebody who does. And yet. And yet, a few thousand years of human puzzling, and are we any closer to answering the big philosophical questions? Is there a chance that just round the corner, someone is going to write a paper or a book or a theory which is going to outline the key questions about the universe and about our lives? Well, you already know the answer, don't you? It's not going to happen. You only have to imagine the situation that such a thing occurred to realise that it's implausible. I mean, imagine that tomorrow some scientist writes the uh, grand unified theory of everything which describes the ultimate laws of the universe from the outset, describes where we are at the moment, and indeed how everything has come to pass. Well, what do we do then? We close down the Big Hadron Collider... We, um, uh, we, uh, we close our cathedrals and churches, because we know now, of course, how it all is. We stop our philosophizing. Uh, we do all of that. And we just contemplate the absolute truth for the indefinite future. Well, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. So, how is it that we find ourselves in the situation where... We appear to know so much, and yet, in a sense, we get no closer to arriving at those ultimate objective truths. So, what's going on here? <coughs> well, I guess you're not expecting me to provide a definitive and final answer. But I'm going to give you a hint of the sort of answer that I want to give. And I want you to imagine that you find yourself in a labyrinth. And it's a labyrinth which has got, it's made of corridors and it runs indefinitely linking to other corridors. And rather like the uh, Borges's Tower of Babel, the walls of the labyrinth are made of knowledge. You might imagine them of books lining the corridors. And the inhabitants of this labyrinth wander through it, searching for the, for the ultimate corridor, the one that would somehow tell us everything about how all of the others are. But of course, they've never found it. Now if you look closely in the corridors, you can find cracks or at least some believe that you can find cracks, others dispute it. And if you get up close to the crack, you can glimpse through. And as you glimpse through, the, cor the crack becomes a more of a gap. And it is said that you can glimpse beyond the corridor into the world beyond. 
But nobody has actually been able to tell us of this experience. Because the moment they walk into the gap and through to the world beyond, new corridors arrive on both sides and they find themselves in another space lined with books of knowledge. And those corridors sometimes link back to the labyrinth from which they came in the first place. So, of course, I want to propose to you that we are operating in a space that is something like that. And that is something like our relationship to the ultimate questions which lie beyond our corridors. And what I want to talk about this evening is to say a little bit how we might find those cracks and a little bit about the adventure that might follow from trying to peer through them. Now, philosophers have tended to be more interested in truth than error. Indeed, philosophy and philosophers could perhaps be defined by the attempt to reach truth. And yet the rigorous attempt to arrive at the truth has most typically uncovered its failure. Analytic philosophy is just one such example. Irritated with the failure of philosophy to make any progress in a couple of thousand years, we might sympathise with him, Russell wanted to put the subject on a sound footing, making it a science and uh, allowing for piecemeal advance. He was going to do this by grounding philosophy on logic and analysis to provide a solid foundation on which to build. It was a great vision. But here we are, a hundred years later. Has agreement broken out between the uh, analytic philosophers or between philosophers as a whole? Have we somehow become more confident of the firm foundation on which to build knowledge? Well, no. Of course, the disputes continue. And indeed, the primary question with which Russell and later Wittgenstein were addressed, the relation of language to the world, remains as perplexing as it was when they set out. So, the attempt to achieve truth, to arrive, somehow has a habit of uncovering our inability to do so. And of late, the pursuit of truth has come to look like a hopeless task. I mean, few these days actually accept the postmodernist tag, but we live in a postmodern space. We largely accept that we are limited by our culture, by our society, by our language, by the particularity of our circumstances, which makes it impossible for us to arrive at objective truth. Even Stephen Hawking, the man who would once have uncovered the mind of God, has given up on the truth of physics at least as I understand him and what he is saying, in favour of competing models. So what's going on here? 
how can we achieve so much and understand so much and yet find truth so unattainable? Now, I've put forward an explanation for this. My proposal is that the world is not something or some combination of things, no matter how complex a thing, no matter how numerous the things. It is language, and more generally the process of closure, that divides the world into things. But the world is undifferentiated. (coughs) There's always an unlimited gap between our descriptions of the world and the world itself. Not, I hasten to add, because I think that the world is some illusory, transcendent other. I'd like to suggest that you might think, to start with, of thinking of the world as rich and thick and infinitely dense. A sort of undifferentiated flux. But of course, to describe that, it like that, is to use the words of language to use the characteristics of language. And so I'm not going to use that description. I'm going to stick to the description, the openness of the world. And the world, therefore, I go to prose, is open. And it is we who close it through our thought and our language. If the world is something that uh, is impossible to describe, the obvious question is, how come it's possible to appear, appear to do so? How can we apparently know so much? Well, some of you will have seen the film A Beautiful Mind. It's loosely based on the Princeton academic John Nash, mathematician. And in the film, it's characterised as a schizophrenic mathematician. And there's a scene in the film, some of you will remember it, where uh, Russell Crowe, you can sort of just see here in the dim light, but it's Russell Crowe pointing to uh, the stars above. And he's out on his first date with his future wife, first woman who will be his future wife, And they're in that romantic setting beneath the stars. And he turns to her, and he's sort of showing off. And he says to her, "Um, so uh, name an object. And she says, a rose. And he scans the stars. And he says, oh, yeah, there's a rose. She looks, gosh, that's amazing. And then he says, name another object. And she says, an umbrella. And he does the same thing. He scans the stars, and sure enough, there is a pattern of an umbrella. And the point being that he was sort of saying to her, I can find anything that you mention somewhere in those stars. And so he could. Well, there are more patterns than in the stars than we can conceivably imagine. In fact, there are more patterns in this single collection of roughly a hundred dots than there are particles in the universe. <coughs> You don't believe me? Well, there are about a thousand billion stars. Sorry, galaxies. A thousand billion galaxies. 
and each galaxy has roughly a thousand billion stars. So that's 10 to the 24 stars, a large number of stars. And each star has roughly 10 to the 57 hydrogen atoms. That's about 10 to the 81 hydrogen atoms. And let's allow the elementary particles that make up the hydrogen atom, the leptons and the quarks, and let's push it up to 10 to the 82. And maybe we've slightly underestimated, maybe some of these numbers are a little bit conservative. Let's say the universe is 10 times, 100 times bigger than that. It's actually 10 to the 85 particles. Well, in this page of dots, you can imagine taking any one dot and you can roughly, perhaps, link it to another 10 around it. So that means, you know, just by drawing a line, you can say roughly 10 around any one dot. Yes? And if you start on one of the dots, there are 10 dots you can go to. And from the next dot, you could go to another 10. So there are at least 10 to the 100 patterns in this page. That's billions of times more the number of particles in the known universe. So yes, of course it was possible for the mathematician to find uh, a pattern somewhere in the stars. However, it's obvious, therefore, that we can, or we could have, looking at those stars, found all sorts of patterns. It's not like we're stuck to the rose or the umbrella. The number of ways we can hold those stars is beyond our comprehension. But the fact that there are all of these doesn't mean that identifying them as in one particular way isn't potentially useful. There's nothing in common between the rose or the umbrella or any of the other millions of different patterns that could have been chosen to identify those stars or, or something in those stars, which makes them the same as the stars. And yet it's still useful. And how is it useful? Well, once I've pointed out the rose to you, I can say... Well, just go down from the bottom of the stem of the rose and you'll find another star. So I can use it to point to other stars up there. I can follow the rose across the sky <coughs> as the evening goes on. If I applied patterns to the whole of the sky, I could identify those stars which don't stay within a pattern. What we would now identify as planets. I could then use that pattern to navigate across the world. But there's nothing in common between those patterns and the stars themselves, is my contention. They haven't somehow uncovered some truth about the stars. If they have done, there are more ways of doing so than we can possibly contemplate. But it still enables it to be useful. It still enables us to do something with it. We don't need truth in order to make our ideas about the world, our closures, effective. Now, 
We may not need truth. But there are certainly examples of error. We may be victim to a particular perspective. It may be accepted that we can't arrive at an ultimate truth. But uh, that we're limited by our models and by language. But if there was no error, surely anything would go. And that's clearly not the case. Paris is not the capital of London. Mitt Romney is not the President of the United States. And the hydrogen atom doesn't have more protons than a carbon atom. And as far as we can tell, there isn't a rhinoceros, at least a real one, in the room with us at the moment. We rely on error to correct our accounts of the world, to refine our scientific models. And how can this be if there's no objective truth? So, to get a little bit more handle on how one might answer this question, I want to tell you a little bit more, or talk a little bit more, about the process of closure. About how we realise things, how we make things real from the openness of the world. And I want to start by defining this process of closure. Closure is the holding of that which is different as the same. I'm going to repeat that. Closure is the holding of that which is different as the same. So what do I mean by that? Let's take this book. There's lots of different stuff going on here. There's different colours, different textures different materials, feels differently in different places, sounds differently. There's lots of different stuff going on. And we hold all of that difference as one and the same thing, the book. That's an example of closure. We hold that which is difference as one and the same. And how are we able to hold that difference as one and the same? How are we able to hold those stars as the rose or as the umbrella? And we do so through the realisation of material. Material is in addition to the world. It's not an interpretation of the world. It's in addition And we hold the world as this addition. So we hold this part of the world as if it were a book. And the mathematician held the stars as if it were a rose. And when we do that, we don't see it as a perspective. It's not as if, oh, well, I see this and I think, well, that's a perspective that I'm seeing this as a book. As if I've got some underlying background stuff that this is a perspective of. No, I hold the world as a book. It's a point, incidentally, that Wittgenstein also made. Now, human experience, I want to propose to you, is the outcome of layers of closure. There are three, I think, primary different layers of closure. And two of those we experience 
One of them is sensory closure, which has the material of sensation. And one of them is what I would call intersensory closure, which is, has the material of thought. Now, the detail of how those processes of closure work will, I think, depend on the way that our research goes in terms of our understanding of the brain. But I think we can discern some basic framework within our current understanding. And the first layer of material generated is our immediate response to the world by our sense receptors, by, for example, the photoreceptors in our eye. These are some, a picture of some photoreceptors. And these photoreceptors in our eye don't describe the world. Of course they don't. They're a response to it. You can imagine them as like bells in the wind. Put bells in a tree, the wind blows, the bell goes off. There's no connection, no description, as it were, between the ringing of the bell and how the world is. They're totally different things. Just as when a neuron fires... There's no connection, as it were, in the sense of a description between the neurone firing and the openness out there. All, that, all that's happened is that the, 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 uh, our interface, as it were, with openness has responded in a particular way. We have a response to the openness out there. And in this particular case, there's one specific response, the firing of a neuron. The firing of a neuron is not a description of openness. It's just a response. So what happens then? The next layer is sensory closure. And sensory closure takes all of this stuff from the initial response, and it doesn't allow all of them. It doesn't hold them all at once. It holds whole chunks of them as one and the same. So just in the same way as the photoreceptor took all of the openness of the world, and it had one response, so we take... All of those photoreceptors, there are, I think, something like uh, 127 million of them. And when we look at the sky, we see blue and some patterns of white. And so we hold a whole wash of output from the photoreceptors as one thing, as blue. There's actually loads of stuff going on. Things firing at different times, different ways, different places and so forth. But we hold all of that as one thing. Blue. And the blue doesn't describe the photoreceptors any more than the photoreceptors describe the world. But what it does do is it holds the photoreceptors as blue. It takes this difference and it holds it as one and the same. So the blue isn't the photoreceptors and the photoreceptors aren't the world and blue isn't out there. What's going on is that we're holding what is out there as blue. So that's how sensory closure functions. There's one further layer. We take the senses, the output of, the se of one of our senses, and we hold it as the same as the output from another sense. We take the visual appearance of a part of openness that is generated by sensory closure, and we hold it as the same as the feel 
of this boot. And there is nothing in common between those two. They're like oranges and pears. They're different sort of stuff. One is a visual thing, and the other is a feel of something. There's nothing in common between these two. And we hold those as one and the same. And how do we hold it as one and the same? We hold it through the provision of a new bit of material. And in this case, it's thought. And through the thought book, we hold all of those different things together as one thing. So I want, therefore, to propose to you that you think of what's going on for us as a series of layers of closure. And our experience is the experience of all of that output of those closures, which are the additions of different types of material. (coughs) I might just say in passing, and I do only want to say it in passing, that language is just one type of intersensory closure. So that through language we hold, uh, if it's verbal language, we hold a sound as the same thing as an idea. And in that way, I think it is a form of this more general process of intersensory closure. I'd like to tell you uh, much more about that, but unfortunately uh, I don't have time this evening. Now, these higher levels of closure incorporate, therefore, lower levels of them. So in the case of the book, we have the overall idea, but within the overall idea, we have the sensory bits, the bits of black, the bits of yellow, and within our, uh, our, the textures, the different textures that there might be. So our our higher level closures somehow incorporate within them earlier layers of closure. So that when we realise things, whether they're sensory things or things that come from thought, the material that we have, have in addition to the world also includes the texture of the previous sort of layer, as it were. And we can interrogate that texture and find out more about the way that we might apply the overall closure. I haven't said that very clearly. But I'll I'll, I'll come onto it again with a specific example which might might help follow that through. Now, the point I'd like want you to think through in relation to the overall puzzle, then, about objective knowledge and its impossibility, is that material, when we realise material, it's always in error. It's holding difference as the same, and that difference is different than it. The photoreceptor is not the openness of the world. It's a different thing. The blue is not the same as the output, the array of photoreceptors. There are 7 million photoreceptors just dedicated to colour. 
And we hold those as just swashes of colour. So those swashes of colour are not the same thing as the thing that preceded it. They're something else. And the material that is generated is therefore not the same thing as the openness of the world. So material is always in error. That's why, in some sense, we can't arrive at some ultimate objective truth. Because there's always an infinite gap. They're not the same thing. But within any given material, there is the appearance of truth. And indeed, if we could eradicate all texture from material and somehow describe each bit of it with new bits of material, we'd have the appearance of arriving at some final truth. But of course, that's an illusion. It's a sort of Wikipedia illusion. Now, most of you will have come across this image before. It's one that Wittgenstein uh, spent some time talking about. And I'm going to make a few overall points about it. Some ones that are, are rather different to some of the points that he made. Now, when you look at this image, I want you first of all to see a duck. So, everyone seen the duck? We've got the bill, we have the eyes. Yes, everyone, everyone, everyone see the duck? Now, when you see it as a duck, you have something in addition to the line drawing. And that addition, the addition that you have at the moment, is what I'm calling material. The material <coughs> is not the same thing as the openness of this part of the world. It's something in addition. And of course we can realise it as something else. You can also hold this as a rabbit. With the ears and the mouth and the eye. So has everyone seen a rabbit? And I pause because it's actually quite difficult to get out of one enclosure and into another. Because when you hold something in the manner of that closure, you hold the whole of openness like that. It's sort of like it exhausts the world. You think, oh, it's a duck. It's obviously a duck. It comes as a surprise that it might be possible to see it as something else. For the moment, whatever it is, it's just that thing all the way through. So we don't see something as partly something and something else. You can't, on the one hand, see this as half duck, half rabbit, as if I've actually seen what it really is. It's both a duck and a rabbit. You have to be in one bit or in the other. And the reason you have to be in one bit or the other is because you've held it as this thing. That's what you do with thought and with closure. You hold something as something, not as a variety of different things, not as a possibility of different things. You hold it as that thing. 
So in this case, if you see it as a duck, you hold it as a duck. You have that stuff. But that stuff isn't somehow out there. You've added it. It's in addition to what... It's not that you've taken this stuff and you've somehow seen, oh, well, from a certain perspective, it could be a duck. No. It's, it's not that from a certain perspective it could be... It is a duck for you when you see it as a duck. And that's because it's in addition to whatever there was previously. Initially, at some sensory level, sensory closure, you take this stuff and you have some lines and some, some shapes. And you take those shapes and you hold them as something. And in the process of holding something, you have something in addition. So the duck and the rabbit are in addition to what you had initially. But it's not only a duck and a rabbit. There are other things that this could be. Anyone got any suggestions as to what it might be? What else is this? Example. It's certainly an example, yes. An example in a talk. Anything else? Clothes peg. It's a clothes peg. Uh, it's a, it, it, it's, it must be a clothes peg. Maybe it's a, a clothes peg with a, with a handle which enables you to sort of click it on to the line somehow. You've got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A very crude map of of an inland lake. And I think this is an island, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We've just started. We're like looking up at the stars. What might it be? There's any number of things that it might be. And each one of those things that we can hold it as is a new way of holding it, a new bit of material, an addition to the world. But the same thing is true of all of the everyday objects we have around us. Again, an image we all know. Magritte's pipe that isn't a pipe. But um, the same principles apply that apply to the duck rabbit. It's not just this thing, it's lots of other things. If we go back to this book, what else is the book? What else might it be? A doorstop. A doorstop. It could be a fly swat. It could be, I guess, some sort of weapon. It could be the forest that it was once part of. It could be the output of a pulp mill. It could be paper. It could be atoms and molecules. It could be all of those things. And within each of those ways of holding it, there is the appearance of truth. So... If we hold it as a book, we can say, well, what are the number of pages in it? If we hold it as um, a collection of atoms, we could try and determine the number of atoms that it was made of. If it was an example, we could say, well, is it a good example or is it a bad example? 
So whichever bits of material we, uh, we realise, we can ask things about that material which have the appearance of being true or false in some definitive way. So we can say in this case there, there are so many pages, 387 pages, not 389. So within the context of it being a book, we have the appearance of truth and falsity. But we could hold it as something else altogether. Now, in the limit, closure always fails. So if we take some material, and whatever it is, a book or uh, the stars, whatever it would be, and we look really closely at this particular closure, we can find cracks in it. We can find ways in which that material isn't the same as the world. And of course we can do that, because it's not the same thing as the world. So we can always find errors in our closure if we look hard enough. Is the book still a book if I take the pages out and I just left you with the cover? I mean, if we try to define what is this book exactly, what, what, what does it really consist of? I mean, is it, the, is, it the, uh, is it the print? Is it the text? I mean, what do we think the book is? Is, is the book the physical object? Or is it the words in the book? I mean, if, for example, we just, if we just take, took the text and we put it on the uh, internet, but there's no physical object, is it still the book? Is it, is it still the book? So it isn't the physical object at all. The book's not the physical object. It's, the, it's somehow the text. But imagine the text was in a different language. And it was... Um, uh, it had no ref- reference to this particular text in the sense that none of the words were the same. It doesn't then appear as if the book is the text either. So the book is to do with a meaning. And then, is there one particular meaning? I mean, suppose you read the book and you have one idea of what it is. Somebody else reads it has some idea. Well, there's, a, there's an infinite number of books, isn't there? And where's this left the idea of that the book is this physical thing, this, this thing here? Well, all I've done is to take the closure book and point to some of the ways in which it fails. And we imagine somehow, most of the time, that we can get rid of these bits of failure, we can, we can add another bit of material to try and solve the problem, but of course we can't. Because the book isn't the stuff that's out there. And I can always find ways in which the closure, the way of holding it, doesn't work. Just as I could go back to that duck and say, well, wait a minute, there's a rather big bill on this duck. <coughs> wait a minute, where are the feathers? <coughs> I can always show you ways in which your closure is wrong, in which the, the way the material fails. So you can always find failure. 
So closure always fails in the limit. And the way that we can make it look as if we have actually arrived at truth is to get rid of texture altogether. So there's no underlying bit to go back and say, oh, well, no, that isn't right. That bit, that bit doesn't fit. There's no bit left. That we've somehow described all of the bits so completely that we just can't get in there to find any new ones. And indeed, you know, that's what we try to do with our, with our descriptions of the world. We endlessly fill new bits in the idea that we might be able to get to the end somehow, the texture, and have just material. And then we would know how it, how it was. And if we could eradicate texture, if we could get rid of it altogether, we would indeed have arrived at truth. And there's an example of where we do. Mathematics has largely got rid of texture. What does maths do? It operates with the idea of one, the X. Not one particular thing, of course. Not one particular X. The idea of the possibility of the one. But you can't point to me one object. Because as I've already shown, anything you show me that is one is also multiple things. There are bits of whatever the one is. You can't show me an example of one. Because there's always texture. But as far as Max is concerned, there is one. There's just one thing. And it can then manipulate that idea of one, the idea of the perfect closure. The closure in which there is no remaining texture. And in the context of that, in the context of mathematics, you get clear truth and falsity. Because within the context of the definition and the way that you've set up the material, there is an answer. And insofar as we can apply that framework to the world, it's immensely enough. <laughs> but it isn't the same thing as the world. Even though there are some physicists at the moment, some cosmologists who seem to argue that mathematics is the world, <coughs> this is just not reasonable. The world isn't mathematics. It's nothing like mathematics, as we all know. <laughs> what we are able to do, though, is to hold it in the context of mathematics. If we've already divided it into things and then we can apply the principles of mathematics to those things, then we can get it to do all sorts of stuff for us. Now, we often suppose that all of the different ways in which we hold an aspect of the world are different ways of holding some underlying physical stuff. So you may think, or you may be thinking, well, it's all very well, this account I'm giving, but actually, all of these different ways of holding things, really, there's the physical stuff that underlies it, as if the physical stuff was the essence of the thing. 
as if the book was ultimately molecules and atoms. And all of this other talk is entirely secondary. That's what it somehow really is. But I just want to say this physical stuff is just another way of holding the world. The saying that the book is really paper or really wood or cellulose or really organic molecules or carbon or oxygen or hydrogen atoms or all different types of material that realise openness in specific ways. Perhaps the book is not any of these things. The book, as we said, is really the thought that underlie the idea behind it. There's nothing privileged about the physical things. There's nothing privileged about the idea of atom. Atom is just the same as all other closures. In just the same way as other closures, it has provided this material which, if we look closely, will turn out to break down. A hundred years ago, the atom was thought to be one single thing all the way through. It was sort of like you would look at it. In fact, it was the scientific answer to the problem of texture. It was just, it's just atom all the way through, guys. <laughs> doesn't matter how much you look, you're just going to find more atom in there. There aren't things in the world that are like that. You could always find other stuff in there. And the idea that it was atom all the way through was an attempt to try and answer this problem. What is the world made of? Well, it's made of this stuff all the way through. But of course, that's not plausible. Any more than now, somehow the world is made of leptons and quarks and so forth. This is a fantasy. Of course it isn't. These are ways of holding the world. Just is the overall scientific story. The laws, the Big Bang, all of that sort of stuff. That's a way of holding it. It's a very powerful way of holding it, maybe. It's one which we can elaborate further. We can interrogate this particular closure, this particular set of material, and find ways of improving it. But that doesn't mean to say we've somehow got it, that we've somehow worked out what it really is, as if we have all of a sudden described how openness is. So. Our closures, our tools to help us intervene in the openness of the world and communicate with others. And a key way in which closures are able to do this is that they create maps. You remember that rose and the umbrella, we were able to make a map of the stars with those patterns. But there's always an infinite gap between the map that we make and the openness of the world. There are many maps of London. Lots of different maps. There's the A to Z map, there's some sort of uh, physical map, there are maps that we've all used in one form or another. No doubt you could draw a map to somebody or, uh, about how they would get from one bit of London to another. They're all different maps. Within the context of any one of those maps, there are things that are right or wrong. You can think, no, actually, we've got that road in the wrong place. It shouldn't be there. It should be over here. But that doesn't mean to say that the map is the world. If you have an ordnance survey map, which is fantastically detailed, the sort of thing that engineers use to build bridges, which is right down to the last half centimetre, 
have the map in front of you. We have a map of this room now in front of us. It is nothing like the room, is it? The map is a piece of paper. It's got some lines on it. It's a different sort of thing. It's useful. It might enable us to draw up some different way of laying out the room. It might be enable us to do things that we couldn't do before. You might enable it to get, get you home this evening. But that doesn't mean to say that it somehow is openness. It's a tool. It's a tool that enables you to intervene and do stuff. And as a tool, it can be more or less useful. But it doesn't mean to say that it somehow is true. That it's, that it's a description of how the world ultimately is. And this, which is a picture of the current uh, uh, idea of representing the universe as a whole, is a way of holding that. But we can interrogate this map and find ways in which it fails. I mean, the most, well, I mean, you might say, well, obvious way is that it, well, I'm at the edge here. <laughs> I mean, are you really going to take the edge of yours? Something that's just black on the other side. And apart from that, this is all representative of, of something at the same time. But this stuff over here is thousands of millions of light years from that stuff over there. So they're not present at the same time. So the idea that you could present a sort of 3D map of the universe embeds some conceptual error here. It's not the same sort of stuff at all. But that doesn't mean to say it's not a useful thing to do. I don't want to somehow bring the scientific research, the cosmologists, to a halt and say, no, no, don't do this. It's, it's got some value. It might help us do stuff. But let's not imagine that we've somehow uncovered how it ultimately is. So I think we can refine our maps. And is as we do so, error can often be transparent. If we hold those stars as a rose, we can then determine where the top of the rose points. Which star is nearest to the bottom? Yet taken as a description of the world, closure in the limit always fails. The rose isn't openness, but if we hold it as openness and develop the closure, we can say many things which are internal to that closure or set of closures and they can be accurate or inaccurate. And as I've been saying, if we can eradicate all texture, truth and falsity can apparently be definitive. And much of our experience, thought and language operates at this level, where we are applying the rules of given closures and realising new ones. It's an error to say that Mitt Romney is the President of the United States or that Paris is the capital of England. Did Spurs lose to Liverpool 1-0 on Saturday or not? There appears to be a correct and incorrect answer. The game is defined. The outcomes are set. It appears to have the clarity of mathematics. Maybe, indeed, it's one of the reasons that we enjoy games. The known outcome. While openness and life is never known and always unlimited. And yet, there's always room to reinterpret the texture held in the material. 
the Spurs supporter might say, we didn't lose, we was robbed. Even the score can be challenged. It wasn't really a goal. There was a foul. Another goal was incorrectly disallowed. There's always residual texture that can be realised differently. And communication and purpose, however, require that in large part, the facts that we use are socially agreed. The score is determined by the referee and backed by the Football Association. The Spurs supporter may claim that we was robbed, but there's a social mechanism for rejecting such individual challenges to material, for in effect policing the rules of closure. And while we can make errors in our application of closure, we're unable, however, to find a true one. And why? Because closure does not describe openness. Closures are tools to enable us to do stuff and to communicate. As a consequence, they have the characteristics of a tool. You don't have a true or a false lawnmower. You have an effective one, or a noisy one, or one perhaps that's prone to break down. That's the character of our closures in relation to the world. We can find useful closures. We can find entertaining closures or elegant closures, but we can't find the one true closure any more than we can find the true lawnmower or indeed the true chess move. There are strong and weak chess moves. There are defensive and aggressive moves. There are good and bad moves, but there isn't a true and false move. We can discern, therefore, two different sorts of error. Errors of fact and errors of judgment. Errors of fact are internal to a closure. They follow from the incorrect application of the system. What was the score in a particular football match in a particular uh, year? Who is the President of the United States at a particular time? But while errors of judgment, unlike errors of fact, concern whether it is appropriate to have realised the system of closures in the first place, whether it was appropriate to have realised the duck rather than the rabbit. Facts are seemingly true and false, although, as I've indicated, they can, in fact, already always be challenged by the residual texture, while judgments are characterised by their outcomes, whether they were useful or not. And once we've made a judgment to realise a closure, facts follow from that judgment. The unpacking of closure, through the interrogation of its texture and the realisation of new material, can increase the value and impact of the original judgment. So we use error to improve our original way of holding the world. And often we can discern a shape to the development of closures, whereby initially we hold something in a certain way, and we can then somehow interrogate holding it that way and find other ways in which it can be improved. But if we carry on doing that, we sort of run out of steam. I mean, Victorian taxonomy may be an example of that sort of thing. You have a way of going about closing something, but once you've had a go at it, after a while, you just sort of run out of steam. The power of the initial 
closure runs out on you. And you just think, no, I need to hold it as something else altogether. I need to do something else with it. I'm not going anywhere with this stuff anymore. Maybe that's why certain areas of science get, get a lot of development at certain points, and then at other points they cease to have the same sort of power that they originally did, and the focus shifts to some other area where there's new lots of material which we can use in some new way. Now, it could be said that the Western progress since the Renaissance has largely been driven by the notion of truth. Yet truth itself is a closure. The idea that you can hold your thought as the same thing as the world. It's an idea. And it seems to me possible that that idea, the idea of truth, might itself run out of steam. The relativist and postmodernist attacks on truth rely on having found errors in the system of closure that is the pursuit of truth. Namely, that the pursuit of truth uncovers its own impossibility. But perhaps, but perhaps there's a more basic level at which the closure truth could cease to have the value that it currently maintains. Wikipedia can be expanded a hundredfold, a thousandfold, but we're never going to arrive. And at some point, perhaps the limitations of what we currently deem to be knowledge will become more apparent. So I just want to leave you with an alternative. Not that I want to give up on the goal of truth. It, it's got great value and has proved very powerful. But the alternative I want to leave you with is to recognise the value of wisdom. Wisdom accepts that there are many stories and many closures and that none of these pursued will arrive at the truth. Wisdom weighs the potential of closures and chooses one that is thought to be most appropriate in the circumstances. Wisdom understands that there isn't one goal or one truth. There are many goals and many different truths, and many different closures, all of which have their own truths. We've become very adept at identifying the facts within our system of closure but we are perhaps less adept at determining which closers we should realise and how to weigh their value. I'd like to propose, therefore, that while we have supposed that the point of science and philosophy is to find the truth, instead it is to find the errors, the cracks in the wall of closure. And through the crack, both to find a new adventure, but also to have a sense of the openness that lies beyond all closure. I propose, therefore, that we seek not truth, but errors, and the wisdom to choose new adventures that will prove worth adventuring. Through the building 
of new corridors that will open up new worlds full of new possibility and potential. Thank you. Thanks, Hillary. I've forgotten that this was a provocation. Something that uh, I was reminded of is that you've often pursued thoughts to a certain limit and then accepted kind of a, a, reflex, a reflexive moment where it applies to yourself. <coughs> and just before we take some questions, I'd just like to ask about what you're doing yourself because one of the things that emerges is a picture of ourselves as sort of closure machines, closure creatures. This is what we do. And, um, but then if you say that, then you're just producing a kind of closure on us. Now, that doesn't make it wrong or nonsense or, or false. It, it, it means that you want to say there's a kind of appropriateness to that kind of conception of ourselves. Yes. And I just yes. wonder yes what what line you take into that question of the appropriateness of, of looking at ourselves in this way right well wow. <laughs> and of course on a personal level your question is entirely to the point because as a student I guess I thought I had found a crack at the heart <coughs> of thought and it wasn't, I wasn't, didn't think that I was the first person to have identified this crack, but it was the crack of self-reference. Mm -hmm. And it did seem to me that it was papered up, uh, or, or covered over and papered up. And I think the reason for that is because within our current frame of thinking, it's sort of insoluble. Right. So the best thing to do is just sort of forget about it, guys. It's just a bit of a problem. It's a bit like the edge of the universe. You know, it's, it's tricky. And, and once we recognise it's tricky, let's just move on to something else. But I was determined at the time not to move on. Because it didn't say you couldn't move on. Because it did seem to me the characteristic of our current condition is that we in some sense want to say that we can't arrive at the truth. Mm -hmm. And that very claim is self-referentially paradoxical. Right. And so I then set out how to solve this. And indeed, the sort of story that I've outlined is in a way an attempt to try and solve that self-referential problem. So on a technical level, one of my responses to you would be to say... Well, one of the advantages of this account that I've given over the more familiar uh, referential uh, description of something that's out there is that I think it handles the problem of self-reference better and that I think it doesn't generate paradox in quite the same way. So that's one reason. But I think on another more general level, I guess... I would want to say, well, try holding the world in the way that I've said. I, I, I'm not obviously wanting to say, this is, I've discovered the truth. That would be absurd, of course. But I would say, have a go just seeing the world in this context. And I think you'll find that it turns out 
to be quite useful. I certainly met many people who have found it, it, it useful. Do you think, it, for example, it might be part of a project of making us less dogmatic and more experimental, less set, set in our ways, more adventurous, and that you see these yes. as, as it were, in, not, I don't know if they're independent yes. virtues, but bound yes. up virtues in some way. That maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe the, maybe the sort of adventure that I want to have through this particular crack reflects a sort of personal um, uh, revolutionariness somehow, a desire to escape from the, the, the rigid lines of thinking as if we've only got this, guys, this is all that we can do. Uh, so maybe there is, is that in the determination of the outcome. But I would say that would be counteracted by a sense of, in trying to elaborate such an account... I have had to fight with the uh, with the logical constraints of the material that I have generated. So I have to account for all of the problems that it might have thrown up. Yeah. And so the theory itself has has to do the same thing as every other theory. It's got to make sense and uh, and so forth. And that requirement of of uh, trying to make it work, has its own consequences for how it ends up. Uh, if it didn't, one wouldn't be likely to generate anything that was interesting. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Right, so some questions. Oh, okay, we've got one here and then we'll you, you, you frequently tell us of holding things. Yeah. And uh, you, you never you never use the concept of reference. Yeah. That suggests to me that, that the, the concept of reference, so dominant in Western yeah. philosophy, yeah. doesn't fit into your scheme of things very well, even though you've just been talking about self-reference. Yeah. But reference in general doesn't seem to fit very well with you, and you, you seem to prefer holding instead of reference. Have I misunderstood? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, I think reference is a mistake. It's just a mistake. I don't think there is... I don't think you can give me an example of reference um, because you can't get out the thing that it's supposedly referring to. So reference assumes... I mean, Wittgenstein and the Tractatus had this... You know, was trying to solve the problem of reference and indeed he closed the Tractatus with realising that uh, some story based on the relationship between language and the world that relied on a notion of reference and truth wasn't possible to tell. It wasn't possible to tell in his view because it was self-referentially incoherent. It was a very... It was influential for me in my early thinking because I thought, you can't do this. I'm convinced by Wittgenstein's attempt. <laughs> and if someone can show me a referential theory that doesn't have that problem, well, I... What, what, show, what me, the, show it to me. What about the, Who, who's got it? I don't think I don't think it exists. And I think the idea that that we've somehow solved those problems is just papering over the cracks. I mean, Hillary Putnam has, takes a similar view, so I sort of agree with him. But I think it's just we're nowhere. How do, you, do I mean? Maybe it's the internal external thing. I'm not quite sure how it works. But if if somebody said, "Are you referring to that book or that one?" Yeah. When you were talking about whatever you were talking about, that sort of thing you presumably wouldn't mind. There's a kind of... It's going on on the inside of an existing closure. Yeah. 
Somebody. I mean, we, 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 look around, we have all sorts of things, don't we? We have the book, we have the desk, we have the people, we have all sorts of objects. Every single part. I mean, I was trying to demonstrate in the, in the case of the example. You can hold this in a limitless number of ways. It's not just this you can hold. You can hold that. You can hold this. You can hold the, the other person. Every part of your visual field you can hold in different ways. So the idea that you know, you say, well, I'll pick up this thing rather than that thing, as if there's some ostensive definition. There's one thing out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, what fantasy is this? There's not one thing out there. It's not this, like, oh, there's only a book. Well, of course there isn't. Any more than you might pour it to the duck rat and say, well, there's one thing. You know, there's, there's, there's the book. Well, no. There are loads of different ways you can hold those things out there. But each way you hold it generates a thing in that context. And certainly, if I do hold this room in the context of people, then we can count the number of people. And we can agree on the number. But that's to hold the room as a room of people. But that doesn't mean to say that there are somehow people there. It just means if we hold it like this, then it has some consequences. Right, and hold, holding will be prior to reference. It's not that we yes. get to holding by referring to something. So yes. that would be the way... Yes, yes you're right. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Okay, and down here and um, a bit more. Well, this, this is sort of personal, but I've spent the last three years living with a brain injury from a brain tumor and trying to figure out the, all the neuronal activity, trying to, you know, like do the stuff they tell you to do, keep repeating something, and you'll rebuild it. You, know, you have just opened up. I mean, what you've given me tonight is such a gift. I am happy all the way through for the first time in three years. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, the reason for my pause is what I think the, the fact that you use the word universal, do you mean were you trying to distinguish between a universal truth and an objective truth there? Uh, a truth everybody accepts. Right, okay. Well, <coughs> I think that there are truths that most of us, the vast majority of us, can accept in the sense that we can hold the world like that. So, if we look at the stars and we hold them as a rose, most of us, we're humans, we have the same uh, closure apparatus, if you like, we're able to have a go at doing that. And when we do, then we can, in general, agree. Yes, the stem is longer than the uh, petals. Where you pick that rose out amongst the stars may not be where I pick that rose out amongst the stars. Uh, that's, that, 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 that's also true. But on the other hand, I think that within a particular frame, uh, we can get a remarkable amount of agreement between us because we're operating with the basic same mechanism of closure. So our way of making sense of this stuff is, has a lot of similarities between us. So we can get things that have the appearance of universal truth. But I don't that, think that, they've got anything to do with objective truth. And that uh, sharing of a, a way of closing the world, um, is that 
for you something that you can investigate empirically itself as well, like as, as something belonging to a human nature, belonging to a, an organism that has developed in such and such a way? I mean, that's saying you employ closures to make sense of something like you've just said there about our agreeing over ways of thinking and ways of believing? Or does that re- is that is that actually not an explanation? It's just more closure. Well, <laughs> I mean, closure is in a sense an explanation. It's mm-hmm. very very useful. I don't want you know. I, I take part in, in various sort of uh, discussions with scientists and so forth, and they often initially think that I, I'm some sort of romantic character. Who uh, wants to believe in openness, oh, isn't it all nice and sort of soft and cuddly? They get in there, they discover I'm the most rigorous scientist out there. I'm saying, well, wait a minute, what about this bit? Why doesn't that bit work? So I think that it's not that that closure isn't explanatory in some sense. It is explanatory. It's just not openness. It's not the world. So, inst- so well, I'm not in a way asking you to give up very much. I'm just asking you to give up the idea that the way that we think about the world is the world. And indeed, you know, our, our, the, the problems that we have to how the world got here in the first place and where the beginning and the end is, these are ways of us trying to make sense of it with our stories. And in that sense, the story of, of Genesis is rather similar to the story of the Big Bang. They both have similar sorts of problems attached to them. And that's because of the way that the closure has opened, the way the petal has somehow opened when we've looked at it, ends up with a similar sort of problem. Okay, uh, there's one at the back there, and then uh, yeah, I, I, I've got a good story. I, I've just come from a conference uh, at King's College today uh, about uh, the Brazilian Truth Commission to do with recent Brazilian, yeah. Brazilian history. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Anyway, one of the, the guys from Amnesty, um, trying to keep this as short as I can, guys from Amnesty described, uh, after many speakers, he described um, the Brazil approach um, as schizophrenic. How would you help me to understand your theory better? Well, I, I don't know, obviously, the, the specifics no. of, the, of, of that commission, but I. You don't have to, I mean, the South yeah. African yeah. one, you know, the... Yeah, ex- ex- exactly, exactly. So, 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 this guy from Amnesty described the, the, the Brazilian one as schizophrenic. Yes. Well, I think, obviously, anything that's set up as a political organisation to determine truth is actually imposing closure. It's just saying, this is how we hold it, this is what's going on. And, of course, all victors in all wars attempt to do that. This is how it is. This is what's going on. This is the history. And, of course, alternative histories are possible to tell. And in alternative histories, the victor isn't the victor. They were the destroyer, and so forth. And the persons were, people weren't murdered. They were um, some other way of describing the nature of the interaction. And so there are two sort of different bits there. There's, the tr- there's the, a Truth and Complaints Commission could arrive at some truth if, within an overall closure, within a set of material, if there's an issue of, well, how many people... Let's assume that the people were killed. How many people were killed? Well, we can determine that. But whether they were, um, whether they were killed or whether they were saved, <laughs> or whatever the description is, the alternative, that they can't do. That is an error 
that those are the differences I was trying to say between the errors of fact and the errors of judgment. The question of which uh, closure we apply is a matter of judgment, and it's often a political judgment. Uh, Which is the best way of holding this situation that will have an outcome that we feel comfortable with? And there isn't an answer to that. There isn't a... There, isn't, there is only one way of holding the situation in South Africa, sort of thing. Uh, there, there, there are, like the stars, a, an infinite number of different ways of holding that. But within each way of holding it, there are specific outcomes. I say there are specific outcomes. I think there's always texture in there, and they can always be challenged. But in large part, there are outcomes. Okay, good. Question down here. So, um, where do I start? Um, yes. <laughs> I think I start from this organ, which some people think seems seem to think is a truth-telling organ. It's not; it's a success organ. Yeah. Um, my favourite authors are probably authors that you dislike intensely. Yeah. So Dan Dennett being my favourite philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. All of Stephen Pinker's work would would answer many of the questions you have been proposing here. How the mind works does show you many of the things you've tried to leave open and close as lots of them. I can certainly recommend to everyone here all of his work. Um, his latest one is absolutely stunning, The Better Angels of Our Nature, um, showing how the world's a happier and better place than it ever has been, even if we don't see it as, as that way. Uh, you asked the question before with the book, what is it? I've actually read some books three times, and because I've been older at each point, I've been a different person reading the book each time. Um, the, the answer to the question of what, what is truth, well, it's what I perceive it as. It's not what you say, it's what I understand. So I, I, I could think I could talk to you for an hour or two and disagree with you all about almost everything. I don't have a question. I, just, I, I don't know, but I, I know a great deal more now at the end of this lecture than I did at the beginning. Perhaps I wasn't listening properly. You're aware, of course, that in terms of your description of this, uh, we have the same one. Uh, Well, yes, absolutely. So, uh, I think, uh, exactly, I don't think this is an organ to find the truth. I think it's an organ for success. That is precisely Mm. what uh, I'm saying. And indeed, in a way, I'm unpacking that particular metaphor. So I would say to you, if you think that, you need to give an account of how it is successful. Most, oh, philosophers, most philosophers. philosophers have tried to give an account for how successful because they said what goes on up here is true or false, and we're able to determine the things that are true, and that's what makes us successful. But I suspect that uh, we might agree, but that's not what makes us successful. I'll buy you a drink. I'll <laughs> <laughs> talk to you about it. <coughs> okay. Yeah. which, um, if 
your views, you know, you start off with analytical philosophy as I did sort of many, many, many years ago. These are the sorts of things you come across and you're told um, there's a difference between analytic and synthetic truth. And the analytic stuff um, tends to be what's called truth. Uh, I mean, I know that's all gone out of fashion now. We've got sort of um, various... That's the funny thing about closure. But just to, my point about mathematics is just that is not that mathematics... Mathematics, insofar as we can define it so that we get rid of texture, can provide us with true and false outcomes. So two and two is four within the context of a certain system of arithmetic and defining <coughs> terms. So within that, within that frame, then yes, I think there are things that are true and things that are false. Fortunately, otherwise we'd have a problem when we looked at our bank account. So there are good reasons why it has apparently clear outcomes. My point is that mathematics is not out there in the world. It's the consequence of trying to... Well, it's, it's, the, it's operating with a, a perfect closure, which we can't find an example of can't find examples of any of these things, of ones or twos or whatever, because when you look at them, they're not those things. Is this one book? Well, we've, we've explored it enough to know that it's not quite so straightforward. It's, it, it, it's if it, it, at school you learn all these things, like one banana plus one banana is two bananas. But actually, in real life, you know perfectly well that it might be one pair of bananas. So, so, so the, the, the way in which you hold the world is not is not mathematics. And indeed, there are many physicists at the moment who, because so much of physics is driven by maths, are led to this view that somehow the world is mathematics. Well, this just seems to me, as I was saying, to be a, a, a profound error. It's got everything upside down. Mathematics is exactly not the world. It is not openness. It is the operation of pure closure. Nick, can I just come back again? Uh, I, I, ask, I, don't, I don't think that mathematics, mathematics is the one I'm talking about at all. You're talking about experiencing the world. And yeah. I was talking about the nature of, of, of objective truth. Um, yes. The other thing is about that you sort of didn't mention very much was definition, definitions. I mean, linguistic problems. A lot of the things that you were talking about... Yeah. Um, and obviously, we can't sort them out because it's because of the, 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 the difficulty we have with linguistics and language. We do not um, necessarily have complete and utter um, definitions for words. We have a lot of problems with them. Um, and, you know, yeah. Is a zebra without stripes a zebra? That kind of problem we have. And we can't resolve a lot of those problems. And I would challenge you to say that a lot of things you're talking about could be boiled down to the difficulties we have with the dictionary. Well, another way of saying it is I think that the problems that we have are because we imagine the dictionary might work. So the idea behind the idea that we can somehow, let's just define all of our terms and then we'll get everything neat and tidy and we'll be able to refer to things in the world without dispute. I think this is, for the reasons I've indicated, a mistake that... That um, yes, you may think, oh, I'm arguing about what is the nature, meaning of the word book here. Well, there's one way you could think about it. 
Another way you can think about it is I'm trying to demonstrate the, the essential failure of any way of thinking about the book. And that all of that attempt to try and define our terms is laughable. We can't define any terms anywhere because they're all moving, depending on how we choose to close them. And so the idea that somehow we're going to sort it all out, we're just going to define everything, and then we'll be clearer. Well, no, we won't. That's why we're no clearer 100 years on than we were 100 years ago. There's all of this... I mean, do you really think that uh, people sit around in, uh, in science departments uh, or politicians, and they think, gosh, we've got a real tricky problem here. I think we'd better, better go and ask the philosophy department what we mean by atom. Well, of course they don't. <laughs> Of course they don't, because if they did, they would be totally lost. <laughs> OK, well, we've run out of time, but unfortunately this is the first of three, as I said at the beginning. We meet again on uh, Thursday, 21st of March, again 6.30 in the Hong Kong Theatre, where we'll be looking at the power of lies. But for, for now, let's uh, thank Hillary Lawson.